right, as we come to look at this part of the Bible. Lord, we would ask tonight that as we come to look now at Esther 5 to 7, that you would speak to us and that you would reveal in our hearts and minds things that you want us to go away and remember. But Lord, would tonight we hear from you a word in season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to take a look at this picture that's coming up on the screen. Can you see it? Can you see it okay? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, the question is, how many ladies can you see in this picture? How many ladies are there? See, this is why it's better if you're sitting near the front. Huh? Can, can, you, can, you, can you see it well enough? I, can't, I don't know what it's like from back there. How many can you see? Okay, so hands up if you can see just one, only one. Okay, so some people just one. Hands up if you can see two. Oh, well done. Hands up if you can see three. Oh, very good. Hands up if you can see four. Ah, you're all useless. There's four. Ah, okay, so there's the, obviously there's the lady there kind of on her phone, okay? That's the first lady, yeah. And then if you have a look at the lady's arm, oh, maybe you can't see it, but you see the lady's right arm that looks like the phone? Do you see her hand? That's actually a lady. Do you see the dress coming down? Do you see, do you see the head? You probably can't move too far away. That's lady number two. Then you've got lady number three who's facing away. So at the end of her forearm, you see that little bit sticking out. That's the nose of someone looking away. And then if you look just above her belly button, there's the lips. And her forearm is also the nose of another lady. So there are four ladies in this picture. I can send it to you later if you don't believe me. Okay, you can get up, look. But, but it's funny, isn't it? Because it's this picture and, and some of these ladies, they're hidden they're there, but they're hidden. And tonight as we look at Esther chapter 5 to 7, we're really going to focus in on the hidden hand of God in all of this. So that's what we're going to focus in on in just a few moments. We're going to focus in on the hidden hand of God in Esther chapter 5 to 7. But before we get to the hidden work of God, let's just take ourselves through the passage. And I want you to take you through the passage with four headings. And the first one is the king's favor. Imagine how fearful Esther must have been. Yes, she was married to the king, but she hadn't seen him for a very long time. And yet she needs to go to him and she needs to plead the case of her people before him and so she says to Mordecai, if I perish, I perish. You can imagine her nervousness as she stands outside the entrance hall. You can imagine her nervousness as she pushes the door to enter in. You can imagine her nervousness as she walks towards the king. Some Persian records tell us that in the king's room, this room that she went into, there was actually a man behind the king with an axe, presumably there to behead whoever came in and was not welcomed by the king. But as Esther approaches, she receives the king's favor. The text tells us that, verse 2, he was pleased with her. And he held out the golden scepter that was in his hand. He holds out this golden scepter and he's glad to see her. And she comes before him and she touches the golden scepter. She's off to a good start. She's not dead. Happy days. Great start. Good stuff. But it gets better because the king recognizes that something must be really troubling her. 
for her to risk her life, for her to approach him having not been invited, he recognizes that there must be something deeply troubling Esther. She must have something she feels so burdened that she needs to ask him about. And he recognizes this, and look what he asks her, and it's a wonderful thing that he says. He says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom will be given to you. Now, he really wasn't going to give her half the kingdom. But it's a, it's a term, it's a phrase. Whatever you need, Esther, whatever you want, Esther, whatever it is, I'm going to give it to you. Just tell me, just ask, and it's going to be yours. Now, what does Esther do? Well, she doesn't blurt out, will you save me and my people? She doesn't do that at this stage. She says, okay, king, will you and Haman come for a meal with me? I've prepared a banquet. Will you come and eat with me today? And he does, and Haman goes as well. But imagine this for Haman. Haman has been invited to dinner with the king and the queen. Imagine Prince Philip was still alive. And imagine you were invited for a meal with the queen and Prince Philip. How would you feel? You'd be loving it, wouldn't you? You'd be excited, wouldn't you? But oh boy, would you feel so proud, wouldn't you? Yes, I got invited for uh, dinner with the king and queen. Yes, I did. And that's exactly what happens with Haman. Because whenever you look at Haman, look what it says in verse 9. We see Haman's heart there. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Do you see it in verse 9? Do you see his heart? He's delighted to have been recognized by the king and queen. I am a somebody. I am important. I am very, very important. I am now well known in this kingdom. I am a man of standing. I have been honored. Verse 9 again. He went out happy and in high spirits. Do you see what Haman's heart gets high upon? It gets high upon the recognition of others. It gets high on being accepted. It gets high on being praised. It gets high on being held in high esteem. He's delighted when he leaves after the first meal with the king and queen. But he's only delighted for about two or three minutes. Because after he leaves the palace, as he's just about to go out the gate, there he sees Mordecai. And does Mordecai bow down and, and show him honor? No, he does not. Look at verse 9 again. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Another indicator of that he got high on his own importance. Mordecai didn't stand up to recognize him as he left and he didn't bow down. Mordecai just got on with whatever he was doing and we're told that he was filled with rage about it. How dare he not recognize my importance? How dare he not recognize what an important person I am? Doesn't he know I've just had dinner with the king and queen? How dare he not recognize me? So he's been high 
And now he's been low, but he's got to get high again. He needs the praise. He needs the affirmation. He needs people to think he's a big deal. So look what he does next. He'd drive you nuts if you live with him. Have a look. Verse 11, he goes home to his wife and his family, and he gathers them around. And look at verse 11. He boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he'd been elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And verse 12, and that's not all Haman added. I'm the only person. Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet that she gave and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Having been brought low by Mordecai he needs to feel proud of himself again. He needs the recognition of others again and so he goes home to his wife and his friends and he says listen to how great I am and they all clap and applaud. Yes Haman you're wonderful, you're brilliant. He's on a high again but not for long. Because look again at verse 13. But he says at the end of the speech, having recounted all the blessings and all the promotions and all his honor and all of that stuff, look at verse 13. He says, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. You know, I am so important and I am so special and I just can't get over Mordecai not honoring me. I just can't get over it. It's really got to me. It's really bringing me down. It's really annoying me. And so what does his wife suggest? She suggests something that just sounds unbelievable. Well, Haman, why don't you build some gallows? And why don't you go to the king tomorrow and why don't you find a way to have Mordecai hanged? That is a perverse suggestion, isn't it? Someone doesn't recognize him, so have him hanged. Someone doesn't honor him, so have him killed. It's a perverse suggestion. But yet look what we're told in the text. Verse 14, this suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. Do you see his heart here? It's a heart that gets high on the recognition of others. It's a heart that needs the praise of people. It's a heart that needs it so much that he's prepared to have the one person who doesn't honor him hanged on gallows. What a broken heart human has. Anyway, then we come on to what's probably the, the funniest part of Esther. Probably the funniest part of the whole book. So there you have him. There's Haman. And he's got up early the next morning. He's going to go and he's going to go to the king and he's going to find a way to get Mordecai hanged. But ironically, what we see is that instead of Mordecai being executed, we see that Mordecai is actually exalted. Haman goes with the plan of having him executed and Mordecai ends up being exalted. Haman arrives, break of dawn, wants to get in early, wants to get this done and dusted before the nice meal with the king and queen that day. He arrives early, but what Haman doesn't know is that the king is still awake. The king has not slept a wink all night. You ever had a night like that? Tossing and turning, unable to sleep, 
We all know what that's like, don't we? It's awful. It's awful whenever you can't sleep. Well, that was the type of night that the king had had. And so what did he do? What did he do this evening that he couldn't sleep? Did he have musicians come to play him a nice serenading tune to put him over? No. Did he invite someone from his harem to come so he could have some fun and entertainment, some dancing? No. No, instead, he had the chronicles of his reign read to him. I mean, some of you, I guess, if you can't sleep, might get our book of Chronicles out and have a go, and that might, that might put you over. But he gets the chronicles of his own reign out. You see that in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6. So they get this book out, and it's the story of his rule. It's the story of his reign. And the men who get the book out, they open it up, and it just so happens that the page they open is a story about something Mordecai did. Isn't that amazing? In this whole big book, in this whole book that could have picked anything from his reign, the page that is opened is the page that talks about Mordecai. It talks about how he foiled this execution plot on the king, this assassination plot. And then if you have a look, the, the king asks and says, listen, what was done for Mordecai? What did we do to honor him? And the man looks at the book and says, nothing, O king. We did nothing to honor him. We did nothing to thank him. We did nothing for his loyalty. Well, we better do something, thought the king. So he needs some advice in this. You know, the king is high up. You know, do you know, like politicians and, and people high up, they don't buy their own milk. You know that? They don't do their own shopping. They've no idea what a pint of milk costs. They've no idea. Well, the king here, you know, as he thinks about Mordecai, he's like, you know, what can I do to honor him? I don't know. I'm, I'm the king. But I have no idea what a, a man on the street, what we should do to honor him. And so he says to his officials, listen, is anybody in the court, anyone I could ask about this? And they look out into the court and who's there? But Haman. Haman's there, your majesty. Bring him in till I ask him what we should do to honor someone. So he brings Haman in. He just happens to be there. Look at verse 6. The king asked him, Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And then look at his heart again. See Haman's heart? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? I'm so important. I'm so brilliant. I'm so valuable. Oh, this is great. I'm going to get whatever I want here. And so Haman really goes for it. <laughs> and it's so ridiculous. I mean, what he's actually asking here is almost treasonous. He, he, you know, he's asking to be put in a king's robe on a king's horse and be brought through the city and told that he's wonderful. It's so extravagant, it's so elaborate. Look at verse 7. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. It's kind of like saying, if you were talking to the queen, hey, if you could just get me, you know, one of the robes that you've worn, your majesty. And if you could just put me in one of your nice black cars, you know, with the, with the flags on the side, and if you could just have me driven around in that with the windows down so I could do my wave, 
It's kind of like that. You know, this is what should be done for the man the king delights to honor. Verse 9, let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Imagine Prince Charles, you know, taking you around, driving the car. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. See, Haman's heart, he's thinking this is going to be for him. Oh, let the whole city know how wonderful I am. Let the whole city know how great I am. Put me in the purple robe, O king. Put me on your trusty steed, O king. And let people see how great I am. I want to be exalted. (laughs) And then you can imagine how sick he must have felt. You can imagine how gutted he must have felt. You can just imagine the blood draining from his face at the king's words. Because what does the king say? Next verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe, get the horse, and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Don't neglect anything you've said. (laughs) And you can imagine Haman, can't you? Oh my goodness gracious me. He had to go and get the robe and put it on Mordecai's shoulders. He had to go and get the horse with the flags, the crests, and he had to help Mordecai up on it. And then he had to take the horse by the reins and lead it through the city, proclaiming, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. High sickening for Haman. But it's amazing, isn't it? There's Mordecai, the one who is hated. There's Mordecai, the one whose life is threatened. There's Mordecai, the one who has been overlooked. He did a righteous act. He he saved the king's life and he was overlooked, rejected, overlooked, hated, threatened. And yet here it is, this Wonderful swap in status, suddenly exalted, kingly in his appearance, riding through the city, being honored by everyone. What a rule reversal. All this, and Esther still hasn't asked if the king will save her life. That brings us to the final part, to the next part. We come to Esther's plea. After all of this, After Mordecai's been exalted, after all of this has happened, the king, queen, and Haman sit down for their second meal together. They go to the banquet, and finally, for a third time, the third time he asks, the king says, Esther, my dear, what can I do for you? I've been asking you yesterday twice, now a third time, Esther, what can I do for you? Come on, spit it out. What is it you want? It must have been a shock for the king to hear what she said. Verse 3 of chapter 7. Grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. O king, my life is at risk. 
and I want you to save it. O king, the lives of my people are set for destruction and I want you to save them. King Xerxes, he, he still hasn't quite connected the dots here. I don't know, he must have been a wee bit slow, but he hadn't got it. So he says to her, look at verse 5, King Xerxes asked the Queen Esther, who is it? Where's the man who has dared to do such a thing? And oh boy, if Haman had felt sick when the king told him to honor Mordecai, you can imagine how sick he must have felt. Whenever Esther said what she said, look at verse 6. Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. This is the man. This is the man who's threatening my life. This is the man who's threatening the lives of all of my people. This is him sitting here before you, O king. Verse 6 tells us that Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And rightly so, wouldn't you be? He was terrified. And then we're told that the king got up in a rage and left his wine. He even left his wine. Hey, furious about this. He leaves and he goes out into the palace garden. And why does he leave? It's because he needs to think. The, the king is in a tight spot here. On one hand, he's actually given Haman permission to put that edict out. So he's already given Haman the edict, the permission to kill the Jews. He didn't ask the questions. He didn't find out more. He just gave him a seal. Do you remember from a couple of weeks ago? So on one hand, he's already given the permission to do this. But on the other hand, Haman is now threatening the life of his wife. He doesn't know how to save face. If he brings back the edict, it looks like he made a mistake. If he kills Haman, it also looks like he made a mistake, but also he needs to honor his wife because he's told her, I'll give you whatever you want. He's in this predicament. How am I going to save face here? How can I have Haman killed for what he's done to my wife, but also not lose face? But as he comes in, suddenly he's a reason. He has a charge that he can levy against Haman. Look at verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Haman is bowing down, trying to beg her, grabbing onto her perhaps. Please help me grabbing onto your legs maybe. And the king walks in and he accuses Haman of assaulting her. Look at verse 8. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is still with me in the house? As soon as word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And ironically, he was hanged on the gallows that were built for Mordecai. Now, I know we read that and it's kind of like, oh, that's a bit dark. But if you were the original readers of this, if you were the, the Jewish people of the day, if you had these enemies around you who were trying to end your life, if you had these enemies, this man who had said that you were all going to be slaughtered, this would be a sign of God's doing, of God defeating his enemies. There would have been a cheer when this was read. There would have been a sense of relief that God was doing something to protect his people in the city of Susa and in the Persian Empire. Haman 
had been defeated. But the edict was still out there. The threat had not yet been abated. And next week we're going to find out what happens. But as I said at the start, this passage is not just about the story, it's about God. And it's about God's hidden hand. It's about God at work behind the scenes. And this evening I just want to point out three things that God is doing in this passage. Three things that I hope might connect with your life. Three things that as you leave here later on and as you go about your week this week, three things that might just be things that God is doing in your life. So the first thing is that in this passage, God is clearly doing a hidden work through consequences. We see God's hidden work through consequences. And we see it most clearly in that passage where Mordecai is exalted. First of all, the king hasn't slept. Why did the king not sleep? Shakespeare says, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Maybe he had lots going on in his mind. Maybe he was worried about Esther and what she was going to ask of him. Maybe there were other issues in the kingdom. We don't know why. But what we do know is that the night before Mordecai was to be executed by Haman, the king could not sleep. Maybe it's just a coincidence that he couldn't sleep. Anyway, not only could he not sleep, but for some reason, despite having musicians and all the entertainment he could ask for, for some reason, the king decided to have the chronicles of his reign read to him. Why? It's a bit weird, isn't it? Coincidence. He just wanted to. Yeah? Maybe? And then in that book, the whole big book, I mean, the page gets opened and it just happens to be about Mordecai? Coincidence? Coincidence? You know, our lives are full of coincidences. But what the Bible teaches is that there are really no things as coincidences. Every coincidence is actually an act of God. You'll hear me talk about God being sovereign sometimes. I use that a lot. God is sovereign. And it's this idea that God is in control. But but the Bible actually goes beyond that. And and the Bible says that that God is a providential God. It talks about, well, the idea is God's providence. It's not only that God is in control, but that God is actually directing this world according to his purposes and plans. And even in these little coincidences, God is at work. He's at work in the coincidences of life. I've seen it in my life. I wonder if you've seen it in yours. Very often he's especially concerned about using coincidences to bring people to faith in Christ. In March 1916, there was a British student. He was at a railway station and there was a used book stand. And he picked up a book that day called Fantasies by a man called George MacDonald. And in this book, George kind of has this book and it tells you how actually the righteous can live a good life and a fulfilled life. And this man read this book that he picked up by chance at a railway station. And through this book, it led him on a journey to becoming a follower of Christ. His name is C.S. Lewis. 
There was a 15-year-old boy, and he was going somewhere on a Sunday morning. And as he was going to wherever he was going, the snow started to come down, and the poor lad was freezing, and he needed to get some shelter. It was a Sunday morning, nowhere was open, but he saw this little Methodist chapel. And so he went in, and he snuck in there, and he went, and he, he sat down in a pew. And because of the snow, the man who was meant to be preaching that day couldn't make it. So one of the men from the congregation got up. Imagine that was you guys. He got up and he was an unlearned man. Didn't really know too much. Didn't really have a lot to say. Repeated himself a lot. Repeated himself a lot. Repeated himself a lot. Repeated himself a lot. And the thing he repeated was this one text. Isaiah 45, 20, 22 Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none left else. And he kept saying this, look unto me and be ye saved. Look to me and be saved. And that was really all he had to say. Look to me and be saved. Look to me and be saved. Look to me and be saved over and over and over again. And he just kind of explained how easy it was to look and what it meant to be saved. And this little 15-year-old boy looked to Jesus Christ there and then and was saved. His name was C.H. Spurgeon. And if you read about C.H. Spurgeon, you will find out that through his ministry, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people came to Christ as he preached the gospel to them. I became a Christian whenever I was, I think it was, must, I was either, no, 19. 19. And, um, I did drama whenever I was at school. I actually wanted to be an actor. And I did drama in my first year of university. And through coincidence, my whole degree fell apart because of a problem with some of the staff. So by coincidence, I was changing my course to, to marketing. Now, I had applied to audition to do a play in the summer. I did a play in London the summer before with the National Youth Theatre. And I had applied to audition again to do a play in London in the summer but I never got word back about when my audition was. I was gutted, but it meant it was going to be home in the summer, and that was fine. I came home in the summer, and it was that summer, through hearing the preaching of the word, that I came to faith in Christ. And what I found out later on was that the National Youth Theatre had received my audition uh, letter applying for an audition. What I found out was that they had actually sent me an audition date and time, but I never received it. And if I had it, I would never have been at home that summer to hear about Christ and give my life to him. And if everything hadn't have fallen apart in my course, the guys I would have been living with in my second year would not have been good for my faith, let's put it that way. Through coincidences, God directs and guides and leads and works out his purposes. Maybe you're in here tonight and it's just by coincidence. Maybe you're in here tonight and you don't know why you're here, but you've just found yourself here this evening. If that's you, maybe it's because the Lord wants you to look to him and be saved. Maybe it's because he wants you to put your faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sins. Maybe it's because he wants to give you a new life, a transformed life. Maybe it's because God has you here tonight on purpose that you would hear the good news, that you can be forgiven and given a new life. 
One of my favorite services this year was Easter Sunday morning, and I'm going to embarrass her, but it was because I got to hear Aideen give her testimony, give her story. And I love what Aideen said. Did you pick it up? She said, there were just a few things, and they were God winks. All these coincidences, and Aideen said they were God winks, and she's absolutely right. Absolutely right they were. God works through coincidences. Sometimes I think we want God to work through miracles, but he just works through often the mundane. He's not a God who often works through miracles, but he is a God who regularly works in and through the mundane. And I just want to encourage you folk, as you live out your ordinary everyday lives, as you experience coincidences, give thanks to God for them. And if you've been praying for something and just coincidentally that thing happens, it's no coincidence. It's God and his providence being gracious and answering your prayer. Let's look for God at work through the small coincidences of life. We have a God who works through more the mundane than the miracles. The next thing we see then is God's hidden way of revealing heart idols. Now, if I was asked you, what do you think of when you think of idols, worshipping idols, okay? My guess is you think of some primitive African tribe with some sort of strange wooden statue and them all kind of dancing around, drinking some sort of strange mixture of things, chanting something. That's generally what we think of when we think of idols, isn't it? Yeah? Yeah, or is it just me? Yeah? Okay, great. Yeah, good. That's what I think whenever I think of idols. But John Calvin said something very interesting. He said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. He says that our heart, our heart manufactures idols within it. That we have idols that we might not even be aware of. We saw the idol in Haman, didn't we? What did he need? He needed to be recognized. That was his idol, wasn't it? If he wasn't recognized, he was destroyed. If he wasn't recognized, he was angry. If he wasn't recognized by someone, he felt like killing them. That idol of recognition had gripped his heart so much that he was high when he got it and he was depressed when he didn't. That's what he was living for. That's what he needed more than anything else in the world. He needed his idol of recognition to be fed. And God, that's often a way that he reveals our heart idols. What are the things that we love? What are the things that if we do not get, make us angry? What are the things that if we do not get, make us furious? What are the things that if we do not get, make us depressed? Do you see how this works? Our God is a very gracious God. And he wants to remove the idols that capture us. He wants to remove the idols that have our heart. And he does this by helping us recognize what we love too, too much. What are your idols tonight? What are the things that if you do not get, make you very, very cross? 
What are the things that if you do not have make you almost depressed? What are the things you get that whenever you have them, you're, you're loving life and you're happy, but when you don't, you're in the darkest place of despair? What are your idols tonight? Is it recognition? Is it power? Is it success? Is it respect? Is it wealth? Is it friends? Is it money? What are the things that have got your heart tonight? You know, the wonderful thing is that whatever you're seeking in those things is found in Jesus and given freely. There was Haman. And all he wanted was to be recognized. All he wanted was to know that he was important. All he wanted was to know that he was valued. Oh, friends, when we look at Jesus, we see we are. There he is with outstretched arms, dying on a cross. For who? For you. How valuable and precious are you? Who cares what other people think of you? Who cares if other people recognize you or not? The God of heaven recognizes you. And you're so valuable to him, he let his son die for you. Do you see how this works? Whatever your idol is, it won't give you what it promises. So look to Jesus and find it in him. And finally, I just want to point out God's hidden foreshadowing of Christ. George Spurgeon, who I, I quoted earlier, um, he really believed in preaching Jesus from all the Bible. And he, he would do lectures to students. And he would say to his students, listen, lads, you see if you can't find Jesus like clearly in the passage, just drag him there through hedges. However you've got to do it, just make sure you preach Christ. I don't care how you get it, just get to Jesus. Well, what's lovely is that in this passage, we don't need to go through highways and byways and layman's ways. He's right there in the passage and he's there in tube with us so, so clearly. There she was. Esther, going into the king's presence, the king who held life and death in his hands, the king who no one could approach, and there he was, the king, and he extended the scepter to her. Do you see the gospel there? There he is, the, the king of the universe, the one that because of our sin we have no right to approach. The one who because of our sin, if we come to him as we are, we're certain of death. But the one who extends to us the cross and the death of his son. And he says, take of him freely and live. And don't just take of him and live, but take of him and then come to me and let me answer your questions and let me grant your requests. Do you see Jesus there? Boldly we can approach the throne of grace because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the second place we see him, we see it in Mordecai's exaltation, don't we? There he is, Jesus Christ, despised, rejected, humiliated, there he is, Jesus Christ, overlooked even though he's righteous. 
But what the Bible tells us is that one day Jesus is going to come again. And Revelation tells us that he is going to come on a horse and that he is going to be wearing robes and that everyone will bow before him and recognize who he is, the Holy One in whom the King takes great delight. Everyone will bow before Jesus. Some of us will bow because we love him. We'll bow in adoration. We'll bow because he's awesome and we love him for saving us. But some will bow out of fear because he's come to judge them. Tonight, if you've not bowed before him, if you've not bowed the knee in adoration, Will you do it tonight? Will you bow before the king and will you give your life to him? So the hidden hand of God tonight, if you missed that all and fell asleep, let me summarize. He works in the mundane consequences of life more than the miraculous. So tomorrow when you're in work, tomorrow when you're with your friends, tomorrow whatever you're doing, and there's these coincidences, take them as little God winks, as 18 says. God is at work to reveal our idols tomorrow whenever something makes you really angry, more angry than it should. Ask yourself, why am I getting so angry about this? What's the issue in my heart? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to look to Jesus for? Tomorrow when you get really angry about something that you know is silly to get angry about, it's the Lord starting to reveal your heart idols. And tomorrow when you feel Tomorrow when you blow it, just remember that the scepter has been extended to you. That the gospel means you can come. That the gospel means you can approach your Father in heaven. Let's pray before we sing our closing hymn. Almighty God, we would just ask that tomorrow and in the coming days, that through the mundane coincidences of life, that we would know your leading and your guidance. Father, I pray too that as we see ourselves getting angry about things that are silly to get angry about, that you would reveal to us the, the idols that are in our hearts and help us to turn away from those things and turn to Jesus for whatever we're seeking. And Lord, we would pray that whenever we blow it, whenever we feel whenever we sin, whenever we feel like we can't come to you, that we would know that when we approach you, you hold out to us the gospel and invite us to come and make our requests before you. Lord, thank you for this passage tonight. And I pray the truths that are contained within it would not leave us, but encourage us in the week ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.